welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Children in our culture have long fixated at this time of year on Santa Claus coming to town and the implications of his visit. There are parallels to John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ, but the implications aren't the same. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, A Season of Anticipation, with this sermon entitled, Prepare the Way, which covers Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me, uh, let me briefly recap where we were last week. So we started a new series last week that'll take us through uh, up until Christmas, uh, just this Advent season where we're calling it uh, a season of preparation, awaiting the day. And what we talked a little bit about last week, I wanna recap briefly, I don't always do this, but I know we had a lot traveling last week and lots of guests with us last week. Maybe you didn't have a chance to go back and listen, so here's a quick recap. We talked about the, the importance of remembering back to when Christ first came and celebrating and experiencing great joy and all that is true for us because of the first coming of Jesus. But we also talked about the importance, the critical nature of remembering forward. And that sounds weird, but it's remembering what God has said about what he will do at the second coming of Jesus. So we remember back and we experience great joy. We remember forward and we experience great hope for what's to come. And Advent means coming, it's derived from the Latin word that means to come, coming, that there is someone coming, a great thing to come or a great person to come. And so all of life in a sense for God's people is that of Advent, that of waiting for him to come. If you go all the way back to the beginning when sin was minutes old, Adam and Eve have fallen dead, if you will, spiritually in the garden, and therefore we have fallen dead with them as we inherit their nature. And sin is minutes old, and God says to them, hey, there's one coming who's gonna crush the head of the serpent who deceived you. And it's subtle and it's easy to miss, but from that moment on, God's people began to await the coming of this conqueror. And so we wait and we wait and we wait and we see the blessing and the promise given to Abraham and we see the blessing and the promise given to Moses and we see the blessing and the promise given to David and the promises that there's one coming, there's one coming, there's one coming. And then he comes. But he doesn't come the way that God's people expected him to come. He, he comes in a, in a very unassuming way in the middle of the night. No fanfare, nothing around him that would uh, in any way stir hearts to say he's here. But he comes, and he doesn't come this first time as a conquering king. He comes as a suffering servant. God's people are expecting him to come with a sword, to, to march into Rome, to take over, and to slay down the oppressors of the Israelites, Rome, Rome itself. Yet he doesn't come with a sword. He comes to take the sword. He comes to rescue us, not from any oppression that might be out there, but the very oppression that, was, that is within us, our heart's sin itself. And I mentioned last week what we need, what we have to realize our greatest need is, is to be rescued from ourselves, from our sin. And so that's why he came the first time. And now, what are we in now? We're in another season of waiting where we look back and we see what he's done and we celebrate. And every day is motivated by the fuel of the gospel of grace in our lives for what Christ has done. But there's also a part of our lives that should and shall be motivated by the fact that he's coming again. 
And when he comes that time, and he is coming, because God doesn't lie, and he said that he would come the first time, and he did, and he's coming again, that time will be as the conquering king to make all things new, to make all things right, to make all sad things come untrue. And so we wait for that day, that day of judgment, but that day of glory for those who are in Christ. You know, I mentioned last week that um, God's people, the Jewish people, they missed it. And I want to show you something that maybe helps you understand uh, why they missed it, about how God's prophets in the Old Testament, how they prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, the one who would come and rescue. I want you to see this video real quick that I think illustrates really well for us um, what this looks like. So I don't know if you've seen this, but this is uh, Garrett Moore, one of our pastors here, sent this to me. And he said, hey, I think this is a great illustration of how uh, how the Old Testament prophets saw how the Messiah will come and then how he actually is coming or has come and will come. So you look at this and you say, okay, that looks like a man, a soldier of some sort. Um, and uh, so it looks pretty plain and simple, right? And you think about the Old Testament prophets when they were hearing from the Holy Spirit and they said there's one coming and you see these prophecies in the Old Testament where within the prophecy, within these predictions, both the first coming and the second coming are contained. You remember from Isaiah 11, as I talked about last week, where it talks about there's gonna be one who comes and it talked about how he was gonna come the first time as a suffering servant, but then the very next sentence talks about how he's gonna come as the one who conquers and is speaking to both. And the prophets are looking through, through the power of the Holy Spirit at what's coming and they're seeing it all at once, but they're not seeing the stages of it. And so as God's plan unfolds, this is kind of what it could look like. And you see that there's lots of layers to what looked like something very simple from the beginning. That what the prophets were seeing of what would be to come was actually true. They saw it clearly. They saw that there was a Messiah coming. But as God's plan is unfold, unfolding in stages, we are able to see that yes, there's more to it than maybe originally met the eye. That he's coming, he has come, he's bringing his kingdom now, this already and not yet. His kingdom is here, but it's here in our hearts. And we expand his kingdom as we allow the kingdom of God to be in us and live through us in a way to where the world around us sees this man, not this man, but Jesus and experiences the, the benefits of the kingdom now, knowing that the kingdom is gonna come in full soon. So this is where we've been talking, this is what we've been talking about Advent, and so what I want us to talk about now is I want us to think about, I want us to look specifically at a passage of scripture that helps us prepare. How do we prepare the way for the one who is going to come again? As you think about that, I want you to Think about how do you prepare for someone coming over? When you know someone is coming to visit your house, how do you prepare? I'll tell you how I prepare. Um, 
when I know someone's coming over to my house, I become maybe slightly, if not entirely, OCD. I become obsessed with how clean the house is. When's the last time we vacuumed? Vacuuming for me, for whatever reason, is like my favorite. It's just like, there could be stuff on the counters, I don't see it, but if it's on the floor, I'm gonna become a crazy man with a vacuum. When's the last time we vacuumed? What about the sinks? Are they clean? Are the dishes out of the sink? What about the bathrooms? Have the toilets been cleaned? What about the mirror? Um, What about the yard? Oh man, yard's big for me. Does the yard need to be cut if it's summertime and the wintertime and the leaves up, right? How is my house looking to those who are coming and what are they gonna think? And the way that I prepare for someone to visit my house, you would think that there's a king coming because of how I get so obsessed with how it looks. And part of my struggle is this. This is very unhealthy, by the way. Don't model me in this. Part of the struggle for me is this, is that I get so obsessed in appearance that I miss the whole point of the one who is coming. The relationship. And I get so caught up in how can I present my house and I I think not near enough, if at all, about, hey, what's it gonna be like? What kind of conversations are we gonna have? I can't wait to fellowship with this person. I'm deeply relational. You probably figured that out about me. And so this is weird that this happens for me when I know people are coming over. I get so much more consumed with what I think is important and miss what's actually important. And this is what happens in the world of religion as well is we sometimes emphasize the wrong things about all the things that need to happen in our lives and we're not thinking about the reality that there is a king coming. And it's not about appearances. It's not about how well I can seem to be put together. It's not uh, how do I look in terms of, uh, of my moral record. It's not how do I look to people around me. Do they see me as a godly person? Do they see me as someone that they would perhaps want to be like? It's, it's actually not about those things. It's actually about a preparatory work to be done, absolutely. But it's not in the house of appearance. It's in the It's in the heart. John the Baptist was the one who was preparing the way for Jesus the first time he came. He was this weird dude. We're going to see it in the, in the, uh, in the scripture. He was this weird guy who lived in the desert that if you and I encountered today, you would try to walk on the other side of the road to avoid him and go, that, that guy scares me a little bit. He's this weird guy that was actually fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah, from Malachi, and from other places that said there's gonna be one coming who's gonna prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. Let's read the text, Matthew chapter three, if you wanna turn there. Matthew chapter, chapter three, I'll start in verse one. It says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this was his message, verse two. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist And his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray briefly again. Father, would you bless this word, God? Your word. May I just simply be your mouthpiece and what is from you, may it pierce our hearts and resonate for days and weeks and months and years to come. What is not from you out of my mouth, may it be forgotten quickly. I give myself to you as your servant, Lord, and Holy Spirit, do what you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You'll notice in this text, there's four things that I'm seeing in this text that are a part of what John the Baptist was to do to prepare the way for Jesus. And what I'm seeing in this text that I wanna walk through uh, with you with is, is I'm also seeing that the very same things are true for us today as we continue to prepare the way for his return. It's consistently the same thing. What John the Baptist was calling out for the people to respond to and say, hey, he's coming, let's prepare, are you ready? Is the very same thing that we see over and over again throughout the word of God is true for us to say, hey, uh, here's how we prepare. Here's how we do the preparatory work for the coming king when he comes the second time. And you'll notice the first one is this. How do we prepare the way? How did John the Baptist prepare the way? The first one was this. He said, repent. This right there in verse two, this was the epicenter of his message. This was the thrust of his message. Surely he said more than just what is caught for us and captured for us in verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, He was a a preacher in the wilderness. He, He had a message more robust than that, but that was the main idea. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Part of this repent message that he had was also just the the call to be converted, to believe, to believe upon the one who is coming. And so maybe the better, I read one uh, commentator who said, maybe the better translation is be converted. Uh, Others said, no, I, I think this is the right word, repent. But it's getting at something that happens in the heart in preparation for the one to come. Now listen, this is how one defined it. And I loved how this guy defined it. He said this, he said, the Greek word used by John the Baptist here indicates, and here's the definition he gave, a radical change of mind and heart that leads to a complete turnabout of life. A radical change of mind and heart that leads 
to a complete turnabout of life. John the Baptist was calling all of these who were coming. He's out in the wilderness, by the way, which if you're a map person like I am and you kind of see Israel in your head, this is to the, to the east of Jerusalem, kind of in that area of wilderness between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And this is where he is. It's, it's just complete desert, hardly any life. And this is where John the Baptist is. And he's out in this wilderness saying, hey, repent, people, he's coming be converted, believe upon him. And I'm not just calling you to come and go through some ritualistic baptism so that you feel better about yourself. I'm calling you to uh, be ready in such a way that you are saying that I want there to be a complete radical change of mind and of heart that only God can do that leads to a complete change of life. You notice that what what it doesn't say is it doesn't say um, a radical change of lifestyle, period. Because that's not where it starts. It starts with a radical change of throwing ourselves at the feet of this Jesus and saying, would you change my heart and would you change my mind so that there would then be through what's happening inwardly within me, a radical change through me. The kingdom of God is, um, I'll say it this way, this repentance, this call to repentance that leads us into the kingdom of God is not one of self-improvement. It's not one of moral improvement. It's not one of behavior modification. God is and never will be impressed with any of that. Because our deeper sin issue is sin. And so uh, th this repentance call, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven at hand call is one, uh, perhaps more of self-awareness, where we become more and more aware that I can't do it. Go back to the, the, the cleaning of the house. You know, once someone's coming, and you begin to become frantic about making sure everything is put together, cleaned up so that they might be impressed when all the while it's not about that, it's about a relationship. It's about fellowship. And so when we think about the cleaning of the house, I want you to think, what if, what if you really did have a king that was coming over? Royalty. But for whatever reason, for the sake of the illustration, you had zero ability to clean up your house. And not only that, you didn't really fully even, you didn't really even notice that it was dirty. And the king comes in and immediately he begins to clean up. He begins to serve. He becomes, he begins to make you aware of all the things that aren't put together in your home. And you begin to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe that you're the one doing this. And he says, it's my joy and it's my pleasure to cleanse. But the message of the gospel is not that he's cleansing something um, that we present to him, something out there, it's that he cleanses our hearts. And so as John the Baptist says, 
repent. He's calling us to this radical surrender to say, oh God, would you cleanse me? Because I can't. I can't do it. And repentance is not only the way into the kingdom of God, it is the point of growth in every step of the way throughout the kingdom of God. Listen to what John Calvin said. He said, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, faith and repentance are not static, the decision of a moment, they are lifelong realities of a new heart. In other words, repentance, this process, this rhythm over and over and over again, day in, day out, throughout the day of this recognition of, oh, oh here's some sin in my life that's not glorifying to him. I wanna quickly repent of that. I mean, meaning I wanna confess it. I wanna put it before him. And I wanna say, oh God, would you change me? Because I don't wanna stay there. I don't wanna be like that. And we struggle in this already, not yet, in this advent of waiting on him to come again. We struggle. And so part of that struggle it's not that we're okay with sin, but that we see it and we repent continually. It's one of the key markers of the Christian life. If you cannot remember the last time that you repented before God, uh, I would be concerned. And here's what I would be concerned about, that what you're caught up in is not a relationship with Jesus, but religiosity trying to dust the candlesticks of your heart rather than giving him your heart. And Jesus is not interested in your morality self-improvement campaign. He's, he's interested in, in having all of you for his possession, to rescue you from your sin. The first step in repentance, I've already mentioned it, but I want to dive into it a little bit more. And this is what we see happening in the text. This, the first step in repentance is confession, confession of sin. It says there in verse four, I'm sorry, in verse six, it says, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. So those who are hearing this message of John, we're stepping into the reality of repentance by saying, I don't wanna just go through the motions. I wanna actually see the sin that is present within me and I wanna confess it. I wanna get it out there and I wanna say, yes, I want this heart, this radical mind and heart change that only God can do. It's interesting when a, uh, when a Gentile, a non-Jew, and this is going back for many, many years before Christ ever showed up. When a non-Jew would decide that they wanted to become a Jew and embrace Judaism, become an Israelite, what began to be the practice of certain sects of Jews, you had, you had different um, manifestations of Judaism. You had the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, and so on and so forth. And some, they believed a little differently on some of the nuances of the faith. And some of those channels of Judaism began to practice baptism for a Gentile who would repent and say, I want to become a Jew. A Jew. I want to follow Yahweh. I want to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they would say, well, that's great. But in order to demonstrate that you really want to embrace this new way of life, you need to take a bath. So even if you go over today and you see some of the remains of some of these old synagogues, 
And even outside of the temple there in Jerusalem now, the remains of the temple, you'll see these big cavernous holes near where the temple and where the synagogues were. And those used to be filled with water and they would just go down into them into a cleansing ritual. And that cleansing ritual for the non-Jew became known as baptism. And so John the Baptist is calling people to be baptized as a demonstration of I want this radical change of mind and heart. But don't miss this. This is the interesting thing. His call is not primarily to the non-Jew here. It's to the Jewish people. They've never needed to be baptized before. Do you notice what he says here? He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. We'll talk about what he says next in just a moment, but he's saying, look, some of you are so caught up in the religious performance that you don't even understand what I'm asking you to do here. I'm not, I'm not asking you to come and just partake in a ritual that makes you look better. I'm asking you as a Jew, as one who has never had to be baptized before, as one who brags about, but we're the children of Abraham. We don't need to do this. I'm asking you to embrace a new way of life centered on the one to come that is a radical change from anything that you've ever known because it's centered on your heart. And actually God's always been concerned about your heart. You just missed it. So he's asking God's people to repent. And the first step in that repentance is confession. He's in essence saying, you religious ones, ones who think you are clean, you too are filthy. You too need cleansing. Would you come? Would you become aware of the condition of your heart and would you let would you let the Messiah do what only he can do? Look what he says next though, verse eight. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what I just mentioned. He says this, verse nine, and do you not presume to, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, they were bragging about the fact, well, we, we don't have to do all these things. We don't need to embrace this radical life change that you're talking about through the heart and the mind because we're children of Abraham. And John basically says, so? You think God's impressed with that? Which, what does that mean for 2021 Believers, it means this. Are you basing your standing before God based on a past experience? Are you basing your relationship with God on present fruit? On a present vital reality that you are dependent upon him every day to live through you, in you and through you, to produce his fruit? You're not gonna do that perfectly we're gonna do it very imperfectly. We'll struggle greatly, but we long to see God produce his fruit through us. But what we often see, particularly in Southern American culture, is, is a people who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And 
And it's based on a baptism or a decision or an experience that was, ha- that was had years and years and years ago. And there's never been radical change of mind and heart. And therefore, there's never been radical change of lifestyle. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Those who are repentant, who are flinging themselves upon Christ, will bear fruit. Over and over again in the scriptures, the two key markers for those who are truly followers of Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit living within them, the two key markers are this, that they bear fruit and that they persevere. They persevere to the end, meaning they walk with Jesus until the end. We don't know people's hearts. I'm not judging anyone's hearts. We can't do that. But the scriptures do give us indication of what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus. And one of those is that it's not based on your religious pedigree. It's not based on a past experience. It's not based on who your parents are or were. And it's not based on your Christian education and what you know. But it's based on a radically dependent lifestyle of heart and mind saying, Jesus, I need you. Bear fruit through me. The last thing that you see of how do we prepare the way right here at the end of the text Verse 11, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. Here's one of those prophecies right here that was like the picture that we saw of the man. Right here, there's a promise that's going to be fulfilled within a matter of a few years. And then there's also a promise that's gonna be fulfilled when he comes again. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That was fulfilled at Pentecost. Christ had resurrected. Christ had ascended into heaven and he had promised that I'm gonna be sending the helper. And when the helper comes, he will fill you and he will empower you. And that happens in Acts chapter two. Where the spirit falls upon the people of God who have believed upon him and he indwells them and gives them ability to do the work of the kingdom that they don't have the ability to do apart from Christ in them. And so that was fulfilled at Pentecost and that is fulfilled for every believer who believes upon Jesus today. We have the Holy Spirit. He has baptized us once and for all with his Holy Spirit. But he's also gonna come again and he's gonna baptize, if you will, this earth with fire where he will take everything that is not glorifying to him and he will take everything that is not his, that has been given over to evil and he will burn it up before he ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. Listen to what it says in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. These are the verses that we probably don't have on our refrigerators. It's probably the ones that we don't have our kids memorize. Hey kids, memory verse, Matthew three twelve. you got it? But they're nevertheless true. We don't like talking about them. I mentioned this last week. We don't like to talk about the reality that Jesus is coming and he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And that reality compels us now to survey the condition of our hearts and ask, are we his? 
winnowing. He's got his winnowing fork in his hand. What did that mean? Well, back then, uh, you, would, you would go out and find an open space um, out in a, in a field, an open area, and you would, you would put all the barley and the wheat onto this open space. You'd put rocks around it, and then you would have oxen who would carry this, uh, this big apparatus behind them that would have rocks on it, and they would press down the barley and the wheat to, to separate it to get down to what was needed, what was beneficial for food and for cooking and all the ways of life in that day and age. But once that had happened, that person who was doing, overseeing this would take this, this fork that had prongs on the end of it and like a shovel and begin to toss it into the air and let the breeze then take all the residue, all the dust that's on the kernels of the grain that didn't need to be there. And he would, this person would flop it into the air so that the breeze would take the shaft away and what was needed would fall back down to the ground. And then any shaft that was separated that was still around the area, you would sweep up and you'd pick it up and you'd throw it into the fire. And the kernels, the kernels that were now separated from the shaft, those are the ones that would be used. This is a hard topic. But we believe God's word is true and we believe that the very one who promised that he would come the first time as the suffering servant has also promised that he will come again and he's never lied to us before. And this time is the conquering king. And so his call to us is the same call that John the Baptist gave to those people though all those many years ago. Are you ready? Have you embraced repentance, confession of sin, bearing fruit in accordance with the repentance. And are you, here's the fourth one, are you seeing and embracing? I don't remember how I worded it. Let's put it up there. Are you seeing and expecting the supreme worth and work of Jesus, both now and when he comes again? He's doing a work now. He will do a completed work then. And those who are not his, who have not believed upon Jesus, that return of Jesus will not be a glorious day. He'll be thrown into the fire, and that's a different sermon for another day. Come back in March. <laughs> and every Sunday between now and then. Um, <laughs> but for those who are in Christ... We hope with eager anticipation and with great joy for his return. The winnowing fork does not scare us because our standing before Christ is not based on us. It's not based on how well we have it together. It's based on the finished work of Jesus. And we stand before him both now and on that great day. And he, we stand with one stamped with forgiven, with righteous, with child of God because of the blood of Christ. And so because we know that's our fate for those who are in Christ, so to speak, we know that we can hope like the world doesn't know hope. We can hope and wait for that day to come with great, great, great eagerness. So let's do that. Let me pray. Father, we, we ask that you 
would do a great work within us as we wait, that we would be a people of repentance and confession, and that we would be a people who bear fruit, and that we would see and expect your supreme work. So Father, we wanna take some time now and we wanna just sit in what we've heard. Would you speak to us now? Congregation, what I want you to do is I want you to just sit for a few moments and I want you to think about God's word this morning. I want you to think about what we see in this text about preparing the way. And I want you to use this time to let God prompt you to speak to you what do I need to repent of? What are, what are sins that I might need to confess? Would you do that now in a time of silence? Sometimes it can be helpful to, con to corporately confess together, to say in unison together a prayer of confession. I love doing that because it helps give me words. Sometimes that I didn't know how to say what was going on in here. And as I read a corporate confession with fellow believers in Christ, I go, that's it. That's what's going on in here. I just didn't know how to say it. So let's confess together. Let's read, read together. Holy and loving God, we have dwelt in darkness and preferred it to the light. We have been proud of our accomplishments and despaired over our shortcomings. Smooth down the mountains of our pride and lift up the valleys of our doubts. Open a path in the wilderness of our lives that we may find our way to you again. Refine us and prepare us once again for your life and your kingdom. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Amen. Scripture says, 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful and just to forgive those who have confessed a sin. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. There's that cleansing of all unrighteousness. So we don't, we don't sit as those with heads hung low. We actually stand and praise this God who has forgiven us. So let's do that now. Would you stand as we close? You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.